Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti. This is Yoga Land. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrea. We're a little further away from each other today, which feels a little strange, but I hope we sound, well, I know we're going to sound so much better because you created a whole true podcaster audio setup. So I thank you for that. You're welcome. And we've had anatomy on the brain lately because you are wrapping up uh, a course. You're wrapping up the curriculum building part of the course so that we can launch your essential anatomy course in mid-March. And for anyone who is interested in any of Jason's upcoming trainings this year, go to jasonyoga.com slash schedule slash schedule. That sounded a little lispy because you've got your anatomy course coming up. You've got your 300 hour online training, and then you have a hybrid training that you're doing again in London at Jenny Wilkinson's new studio mission in London. And actually, you know this, but the listeners don't know this. I spoke to Jenny as to Jenny as well. So I'm going to be launching that podcast soon to talk all about the new community that she's building in London. Okay. So with all of the housekeeping out of the way, what are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about really essentially two things that overlap, which is number one, why is continuing to study anatomy and feeling much more comfortable and confident in your anatomical knowledge? Why is that still so valuable as a yoga teacher? Also, arguably as a yoga student, as like an enthusiast of the practice. And we're also going to talk about the things that I have learned over the years to make implementing the content that you're studying when you're studying anatomy much, much more actionable. Actionable. Right. And And that's actually a really important key to this whole process. I will say that when I did my 200 hour training, T.S. Little was the anatomy trainer for my portion of the training. And at the end of the course, they did a survey for which portion of the training was our favorite part. And his component was the, his, everyone's favorite part unanimously. I think part of that is because of Tias and he's so poetic in the way that he approaches anatomy. But I think it's also because for those of us who love and enjoy yoga, it's really fascinating. And so I, I'm just excited to talk about this. And I would love to know from your perspective, why it is that we're so drawn to it. I think we're, I think it's two things, actually. I think sometimes we're drawn to it and other times we're repelled from it. I'm going to use myself as an example to to have a lead in. But first, I'm going to say that you and I have talked about what you just spoke of with regards to Tias. Tias is obviously an exceptional person and an exceptional teacher. But I think one of the things that Tias always did in, in, in teaching anatomy was he made it not clinical, yeah. not dry. He made it accessible. And he you use the word poetry. He made it poetic. And he used so much imagery yeah. from the natural world. Let's understand and appreciate ourselves. And I'm going to get to this, but I actually think that this is one of the most important reasons to continue to study anatomy, which is the amazement of it mm-hmm. and the deep appreciation the of it, the wonder of it. Yeah. But let's get to that in a moment. So for me personally, I've said this in other ways on the podcast, that I teach anatomy still blows my mind. And the reason being is that 
this was the most challenging individual subject within the broader context of teaching yoga. This was the hardest subject for me to acquire. There's still plenty of things that I don't know. But in terms of what I do know about yoga, the anatomy segment was the hardest to acquire. And in my training, which was a billion years ago and very long, we had almost 200 hours just on anatomy. And I didn't learn much. And it wasn't because the teacher wasn't exceptional. She was really good. But I didn't have the right mindset. And I'm going to talk about this in a few minutes. So why I find the study of anatomy so compelling and so important for us, number one is that yoga is an embodied practice. And there's an age-old Hatha Yoga aphorism that says, no liberation without practice, no practice without a body. And so a lot of times we say things like, yoga isn't just an asana practice, yoga isn't just physical, it's spiritual. That's, of course, very true. But the inverse is also true, which is yoga isn't just philosophical. Yoga isn't just spiritual. It is actually physical. It is actually an embodied experience. And the teachings of the Upanishads, which lay so much of the groundwork for the philosophical canon of the yoga tradition, these are very clearly physical, sensory existential teachings that come from the experience of embodiment. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to kind of lead in with this is I think that first reason to really immerse ourselves in this process is even the philosophical spiritual dimensions of the yoga practice are also physical. I think the next thing that comes up for me, which we, we said a moment ago, right, is for me, the main thing that I want to convey when I teach anatomy, it isn't, you know, where the distal head of your fifth metatarsal is. Like, that kind of matters. It kind of doesn't matter. What I want to convey is the beauty and the amazement and the wonder of having anatomy, mm -hmm. right? Of, of actually having this stuff. And, you know, I'm the first person to say I, like everyone else, gets absorbed in their petty, vain issues with their body, like you took that photo of me when we were driving to your mom's with Ginger in my lap. And it's like a close-up photo. And I saw that. Like I can't even see the dog. I can't even see the wonder of the day. Yeah. I just see, oh my God, do I actually look like this? Yeah. <laughs> so I had so, another I had a photo from the, that day like that too, where all I saw was my little tummy totally, poking right? out. <laughs> right. And so we we do all of these things on a semi-daily basis, despite our best intentions. We do all these little things where we cut ourselves down and where our minds frames our body as something maybe less than perfect, right? right. And, and maybe aesthetically, our body doesn't always fit the image we want it to fit. It would not to tackle that. But when we actually study anatomy and not just, I don't mean just memorizing this and that, understand the unfathomable evolution and engineering of the body and how it works and how it continues to grow is it's literally just fascinating. Like I can't study this work and not have my mind continuously blown by the, I'll just say it, the magic of it. It's not magic, but feels like it. It feels like it. 
when you start to learn all the processes that need to happen just to keep us existing on a daily basis, you can't help but feel an appreciation and a sense of wonder. Totally. I would also add, it's just another inroad to self-awareness. So um, I think self-awareness is such an empowering part of the practice because once you become aware, you then can meet your own needs more efficiently and effectively. So it's another inroad to those light bulb moments of, oh, that's why my foot hurts when I do this. (laughs) That's why um, I feel so comfortable in this pose because my body goes this way and doesn't really go that way as easily. Yeah, this is on the list. This is on this list. And essentially it's so basic, but as teachers, the more we understand and the more we can unpack the more we can communicate those things to our students and it helps our students learn about themselves. So whether a student learns like, oh, this is the Alecranon process, that's pretty cool. I didn't know that it had a name. Like we do all this stuff when we're kids of memorizing geography. I can still set, I can still sing you 50 nifty United States, but I'm not going to, but right. We know that. I might make you someday. But we don't know our own geography. And that's kind of strange. It is really strange. Do you know what I mean? Like that's kind of strange and it's bizarrely disempowering. What do we tend to do when we don't know about something? We tend to be afraid of it or we tend to ignore it. And neither of those are particularly valuable ways of having a relationship with the body. And so by understanding anatomy, we can help literally teach our students what their physicality is. And it's another accessible inroad to have that, that relationship with self. I think another thing, and this is very similar, right? And I'm thinking about this both from the experience of the teacher learning anatomy, but also the student learning from the teacher, which is I truly believe that learning anatomy helps build our critical thinking skills And it also helps us understand the underlying rationale for why we teach what we teach. And it also helps us understand whether or not certain cues that we've heard in the past are accurate and we want to continue to use them or whether or not they're not actually grounded in some sort of material reality. Because I can say all sorts of things and if you don't know the better, then you might believe me and you might even continue to repeat those things, right? I might have a feeling, I might share that feeling, and then you might continue to perpetuate that. And I think this happens a lot in yoga is maybe we've learned the poses and we've learned some cues here and there, but we don't necessarily understand the underlying rationale of why we do X in this pose and why we do Z in that pose. Mm-hmm. And and I think I think this is a I think this is a real problem because One of the main things I always want to do as a teacher is help help my students think critically. And if we don't have a clearer understanding of the technical, the technical mechanical reality of our body, then we're not going to be as empowered and we're also not going to be as likely to do anything other than repeat someone else's cues. Like, how are you going to develop your own sequencing? 
How are you going to develop your own cues? How are you going to actually see bodies if we don't understand the, the material reality underneath the cues that we're giving? Yeah, I will add to that that don't mean to sound judgy in my comments. Oh, go on. It's your podcast. <laughs> but it, there's a really discernible difference between having 200 hours of training and then having additional training. And the way that I think it it is just, it's just the reality, right? That a 200-hour yoga teacher training gives you the beginnings of understanding everything, including anatomy. But a 200-hour teacher has to learn the basics and then often will repeat what they've heard, just like you said. So they might be more, they might be, because it's a more generalized understanding, they might be more prone to giving generalized instructions. Yeah. Whereas when you learn more. So just an example of that is um, I had a teacher last week who was adjusting my down dog. And I think a lot of students in down dog can't extend their spine as much, can't extend their shoulder joints as much. And, but I can, in fact, I overextend my shoulder joints and I hyperextend my shoulder joints. So I really have to be careful not to do that. And she gave me a pretty, f- technically you hyperflex them. Not oh, hyper-extend sorry. Them. Yeah. Um, so she gave me a very, firm adjustment to try to get me to go deeper in my shoulder joints, right? Because that's probably what she learned is sure. that you need to help people extend, extend their spine more and flex more in the shoulder, in shoulder joints to really go in the pose. But for me, that was definitely not the right adjustment. And so I was able to, as an experienced student, just have her stop But I think when you learn more, you get more of the nuances and you get more, a deeper understanding of just the spectrum of different bodies. Absolutely. I think what you are dealing with there is a plug and play manual adjustment or a plug and play cue. And there's a time and a place for that. And a lot of times those plug and play things work, but a lot of times they don't. And I think that this is the reality of becoming more committed to the deeper layers of this profession is going beneath the plug and play and understanding, like we were talking about a moment ago, the rationale that lives underneath those plug and plays, if for no other reason, to see the exceptions. So to be able to understand, oh, here is the plug and play adjustment, and it actually works for these five people in the room. But this person that's already able to move in this direction, they don't need this plug and play. And if I don't, if I only understand the adjustments or if I only understand the cue and I don't understand the anatomy underneath it, then I don't have the critical thinking skills to understand when it applies and when it does not apply. And that's a huge component. And I would say it's not just really even issue of a 200 hour or a 500 hour I would say, at least for me, in this particular avenue, in this particular subject matter, it's about an ongoing commitment over time. Like, the reason that I know anatomy the way that I know anatomy, and let me be clear, like, there's still things I don't know, just like there's all sorts of things in my life that even when I have a high level of understanding of, I have plenty that I can continue to learn, for sure. 
But I was saying earlier, the reason that I know what I know and can share it with students about anatomy is not because I am particularly gifted in this subject matter, but because I've been tenacious for decades. And it's literally, I'd say this is the last thing that I want to lay out. And then we'll look at some of the some of the more effective ways to learn anatomy and some of the pitfalls we want to be mindful of avoiding. For me, the way to learn anatomy has been bit by bit in increments over time. I think that's what I was trying to say. Yeah. I think it's not fair to sit, to qu- quantify the number of hours, but it's just that it takes anybody time and experience and like devotion to learning it and repetition in order to really bake it in there. Totally. And I'll put myself in the seat of that teacher that was giving you that adjustment. When I was a newer yoga teacher, I gave a lot of adjustments and I guarantee you they were not all good. I don't. I think everybody's been there, right? Everyone has. And some were wonderful and some were not good. Okay. And so then I have to step back with critical awareness and be like, oh, that person flinched when I did that thing. Or Oh, that person like tensed up when I did that thing. I audibly gasped. Oh, that woman audibly gasped. <laughs> that podcaster audibly gasped. <laughs> she did not know I was a podcaster, okay? that's for sure. So, so then I have to then take it upon myself to say, oh, well, I was touching the shoulders. Let, let, me, let me refine my understanding of these things, right? right? And it's where we, as a yoga teacher, we have a very strange job. There's a lot of things that are strange about it. But one of the things that's odd about our job is... There is just so much on-the-job learning, but the thing is that we're doing on-the-job learning with other actual humans, right? And so we want to make sure that we, in whatever it is, and however you do your, however you do your ongoing education, whether it's me or someone else or free or not free, whatever it is, we just have to stay committed to developing these elements within ourselves. I think that the final thing that I actually do want to say on this, I think the final reason to me that it's so sensible to continue to study anatomy or it could be really any other dimension of our profession is it's going to give you much more confidence. There's a certain thing I think we know when we don't really know what it is that we're saying. I guarantee just like I told you, I guarantee not all the adjustments were ever good. I guarantee you not all the cues I ever gave. Either A, were grounded in any sort of sensible technical rationale, or B, that I knew what I was talking about all the time, right? Sure. Literally, the amount of time, like especially early on, like maybe I knew what those were, but more or less I, I was repeating what my teacher had said, which doesn't mean that they were wrong. But there's only so far I can develop myself as a teacher. There's only so much I can find my voice as a teacher. And there's only so much that I can feel confident and empowered when I don't truly understand the source material. When I understand that what I'm actually saying is simply what I've heard, not what I deeply know from the core. You do the best with what you know at the time, and then you dedicate yourself to continuing to learn and grow. This is my approach to parenthood as well. So that's why it was right at my fingertips. Perfect. So <laughs> let's let's kind of shift our attention. 
And let's talk about the things that I've learned over the years, both as a student and both as a teacher, about the most effective ways and some of the common pitfalls to learn and integrate anatomy. So the first thing, and to me, this is the biggest mistake, like this is the biggest mistake, which is to lead with memorization, okay? So I wanna give you a couple of examples. And I think that this is one of the reasons that learning anatomy, I think this is one of the reasons that for some people, I won't say some people, I think many people, you can listen to anatomy all day long and it doesn't actually soak in. And I I think that if you are the type where you've listened to this anatomy or you've listened to that anatomy or this course or that course, even if it's really good, I think that if you are struggling, it is likely that you are focusing too heavily on trying to memorize things instead of understand concepts. So let me let me kind of back off and I and I and I'll give you an example of okay. this, okay? I want you to imagine that we still live in San Francisco, right? And that we have someone come visit us who's never been to San Francisco and they want to get to know the city, right? They want to enjoy it, they want to learn about it. The way that we're going to show them San Francisco is we're going to go out in it. Like we're going to be like, oh, okay, so we live in Bernal Heights. Let's walk up this hill. We walk up the hill. This is Bernal Hill. Let's walk down the hill. Let's go to Cortland. We walk around Cortland Avenue. Okay, that's Cortland Avenue, right? Let's go to Pinhole Coffee. Boom, boom, boom. And you repeat that, and then you start to learn. Oh, this is Bernal Heights. Oh, that's Bernal Hill. Oh, that's Cortland. Oh, this is the coffee shop. I love that you just plugged Pinhole Coffee. Pinhole Coffee. Go to Pinhole Coffee. And and Bernal Hill and Cortland. So... That's how you get to know the city. Let me tell you how to not learn the city. Look at a map and start memorizing street names. Or just say, I heard Coit Tower is a really great thing to see in San Francisco. Right. And then you, yeah. And then you, and then you memorize. The point I want to land on is memorizing. Okay, this is Columbus Street. This is Broadway. This is whatever. Like a lot of times what people will do is they will start to memorize things right off the bat. They'll start to memorize, this is the semi-membranosis, this is the semi-tendinosis. Or worst case scenario, a teacher talks you through the planes of movement. This is the coronal plane, this is the sagittal plane, this is the transverse plane. And what you start to do is you start to focus on memorizing these things instead of directly experiencing these things. Let me just, I'm going to take a brief side note on those planes. Andrea Ferretti, do you know that you have a right side of the body and a left side of the body? I think I do. Do you know that you have a front side of the body and a back side of the body? Yes. Do you know that you have a top half and a bottom half? Yes. Then I don't need to spend a day or complicate matters by saying, this is the sagittal plane and this is the transverse plane and this is the coronal plane. There's all these things that are taught and that are memorized that are never in your life as a yoga teacher or as a yoga student going to be in any way helpful. So starting with this like rote memorization of regions and these rote memorizations of tissues and groups and so forth, it doesn't, it's not, it's not likely to end well. Okay. Now there are some things that need to be learned and there are some technical things that need to be memorized, 
But what I want to lay out first is, and we'll go back to the San Francisco example, it's all about, in my experience, laying out the macro and understanding the concept so that you have context for the details. So one more time. So give me an example. Of yeah. That. Yeah. So let's talk about the feet. Now I could say, okay, everybody, you have intrinsic foot muscles and you have extrinsic foot muscles and you have the talus and you have the cuboid and you have the metatarsals and you have the phalanges and so forth and so on. Now, at some point we are going to do that. At some point we are going to say, this is Wall Street. This is Virginia Avenue. This is Lundy's. At some point we're going to get there. But if you don't have a context first, it's not going to stick. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with the feet and say, let's actually understand the nature of the foot. Like, let's actually understand this. So the foot is really a triangular base plate. You see all of these bones, like all of these small bones. Why do we have all these small bones? Because the foot has to be able to do two main things. It has to adapt to movement of the body on top of the foot. And it has to adapt to the different kind of terrain that evolutionarily we used to have under the feet. So the foot has to have all these small bones and it has to have all these small muscles so that it can adapt to movement of the body above it and below it. Let's look at another thing with the feet. Each foot has really three arches. But don't worry about that yet. What do three arches when they intersect form? Three arches when they intersect form, when they intersect form a dome. Why is that important? Each foot has a dome-like shape. We always call it the arch, but really it's the dome. And what do domes do? Domes distribute weight placed upon it. In your body, what is that weight? That's gravitational stress. Okay. So we, like, these are just a couple of examples of now that we understand these things, now we can start to say, okay, let's look a little bit closer at those bones. Let's look a little bit closer at this material called the plantar fascia, which helps regulate the tension of the domes. So if we understand the concept that the details supports, we're much more likely to A, understand it, but B, know how to use that in yoga, know how to use that when we teach. Because the reality is, as a yoga teacher, you're not going to tell someone to do something with the fifth metatarsal. But by understanding that the foot is dome-like and you're distributing the weight of the body by using it more effectively, then you have some concepts that you can actually communicate to your students. So, so again, the bottom line on this is concepts, then details that illuminate it, just like let's, let's go for a walk in this city, let's do stuff in the city, and then let's take a moment and be like, okay, just so you remember, that was Bernal Hill, this is Cortland, this is Wall Street, this is how we get back to those things. So another way of saying this could be you're teaching or it's helpful to understand why your anatomy works the way that it does why the foot is set up the way it is so that it takes the pressure off of people to memorize every little tendon and ligament and muscle and bone, but instead understand why it's set up the way that it is so that you can use it in a way that's beneficial to you. 
Absolutely. And remember, that's also too what takes us into that amazement, right. right? Into that beauty, like understanding the dynamics of the foot. I'm just like blown away. Right. If I just start to memorize, this is the talus, this is the cuboid, this is the navicular, this is, you know, then it's me memorizing a map. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing. It's, it's very, we have to make sure that when we learn this content, it's not flat. It's not two dimensional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if we have an, a clear understanding of the spine, its function, all the cool things that it does, why it's the shape that it is, then understanding, oh, this is kyphosis, this is lordosis. Then we have context and then it's much, and then the the names and the details are, they stick and they're also much more interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And how about, can we, can we move on? Totally. Okay. So one of the things that you talk a lot about in your trainings is not using too much jargon yeah. that you've learned. So talk about that a little bit. So I want everyone, I'm going to do two very brief meditations for you. Okay. And you can, you can do this, whether you're walking, whether you can do this, whether you're sitting, you can do this, whether you're sitting, laying down, whatever, it doesn't matter. Okay. Each one is going to be 30 to 45 seconds. Okay. Okay. So here we go. Okay, everyone. Welcome to yoga class. I'm your yoga teacher, Jason Crandall. Just take a moment and bring your awareness to the distal head of your first metatarsal. And then bring your awareness to the popliteal fossa. Let that soften. (laughs) You're a goofball. Bring your awareness (laughs) to your ischial tuberosities and let them sink a little bit more heavily. I know what those are. And then now... Finally, bring your awareness to the inferior angle of the scapula. This Let should be your yoga stand-up routine. <laughs> this is your next Netflix show. Okay, now stop. Okay. Number two. Okay, everyone, bring your awareness to the base of the big toes and to the back of your knees. Bring your awareness to the buttock and bring your awareness to the bottom of your shoulder blades. Okay, now, obviously, we compare those two things. But do you think that in round one, I gave you more information than in round two? No. No. It sounds like it, but I gave you no more information. Literally 0.0 So you think sometimes students learn the language and then they feel like it's helpful to use the more technical descriptions because it might be more detailed. No. I think what happens is, see, okay. This might be a little reach, but I don't think it's too much of a reach. I think that two things happen that are both true and they can happen simultaneously. Number one, I think when we are learning something, we're a little insecure. And when we're teaching that thing that we've just learned, we're also a little insecure. Sure. And so I think that sometimes when we're insecure about something, we overplay our hand. And we overplay our hand by, we overcompensate for it by trying to sound more erudite than actually we are. Hmm. And so I think that one of the things that I know I did earlier in my career was I used a lot of technical language. And I think that I don't know, I don't think it was conscious, but I think a lot of it was coming from an unconscious place of insecurity. 
I just felt like I sounded more sophisticated. It legitimized yes. you more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By okay. saying adductors instead of inner leg muscles, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They're literally the same thing. Mm-hmm. In fact, saying inner leg muscle is probably way more accurate than saying adductor. Because adductors, because really adductors specific. adduct, but they also flex the hip joint and they also extend the hip joint. And that confuses literally the hell out of people. And so I think that we both, when we're teaching anatomy sometimes, but certainly when we're learning anatomy and then we're trying to use that anatomy, I think that sometimes we overcompensate and we use too much anatomical language. We and also might get excited by our yes. newfound knowledge. Okay. Right? So that's the second that's, thing, right? I said there totally. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up. I think that second thing is we get excited about it. And that, those, I think those are two things. So one's coming from more of a place of conscious or unconscious insecurity. The other place is coming from an excitement. And in my life, plenty of times, both of those things happen simultaneously. And so when those things happen, we'll, we can in class start to lean a little bit too heavily or our teacher teaching us can lean a little bit too heavily into the more technical anatomical language that oftentimes is not only not necessary, but oftentimes is going to inhibit our student from taking the cue because they don't know the language, mm, right? Okay. And that's, that's the reason I did that silly thing, which is to say, bring your awareness to the popliteal fossa. How good of a communicator am I if I say that in class? If I say, bring your awareness to the popliteal fossa, that's the little concavity in the back of the knee. That's fine. But I think, I think the point on this that I really want to drive home is I don't think as a yoga teacher we want to learn or mostly focus on using anatomical language. Instead, we want to learn anatomy so we understand the technical reasons why we do what we do, but then we convert that language into simple and accessible language mm-hmm. that's, that's much more commonly understood. The, so it's like informing the behind the scenes. Yes. It's informing the behind the scenes, but it's not necessarily debuting that to the audience. I think, that you, okay, you, you just said this in a way that I've tried to say it for a long time. And I think that this is so key, right? It's, to me, it's all about understanding why we do what we do not debuting the most technical, arcane way of saying the thing. And I would argue that the, that there's going to be, there are going to be certain terms and there are going to be certain things that we're going to say in yoga about the body that requires a little bit more discernment. There are going to be some things like, I don't have a simpler way of saying sacroiliac joint. I don't have a more common way of saying that. So there are going to be some things or like medial meniscus. Like I don't have a simpler, less technical way of saying that, but I can make sure that if I say things that I don't believe are common knowledge, I qualify them. I can say, okay, sacroiliac joint, everybody bring your awareness and I can show it to the base of the spine, this little downward triangular bone at the back of the pelvis. And where that bone and your hip bone come together, that's the SI or the sacroiliac joint. So it's having this deeper understanding of what's behind the scenes exactly as you said, but making sure that as the teacher teaching anatomy and as the student learning it and as the teacher communicating it to your students, 
that you don't get buried in unnecessary jargon. Another way of saying this that just popped to mind for me is reminds me of when you're writing, whether it's fictional writing and you're writing a scene or whether you're reporting on something, you want to have no unanswered questions for the audience. So when you were teaching the meditation about the distal metatarsal of the toe or however you put it, I don't remember. See, it didn't stick. It didn't stick. But as a per, as a, person listening to that teacher, there would be an unanswered question in my mind. What is that? Where is that? Why? How? Why? And so you, you, you want to always write or teach as clearly as you can so that the person's brain doesn't get sidetracked totally. into the unanswered question. You want to help them, their brain tune into what you're saying instead of tuning out. And you can, just like I said, say I'm really excited about teaching my drop-in students anatomy. All good. I can say in class, press down the base of your right, the distal head of your fifth metatarsal, the distal head of your first metatarsal is probably a better cue. But then what I need to say is that's the base of your big toe. Right. Press down, right? No unanswered questions. Right. Exactly. I think actually this next point I want to make is relatively obvious in the yoga world. And I think to be fair, I think the vast majority of teachers that teach anatomy do this pretty well, but I think it's still worth mentioning. I think one of the one of the biggest one of the biggest challenges that we can have as a in learning information is not incorporating th- that information into our own practice or not feeling it. So for example, I kind of write we don't want to externalize anatomy. We, we don't want to look at it as if it's geography that is separate to us. Like when you learn about your inner elbow and your olecranon process, you don't want to just see it on a screen or a PowerPoint or whatever. You want to feel your own. You want to use your own. You want to see, oh, this is within me. And the more that you, the more that you have an actual sensory experience of the intellectual information you're taking in the better. And part of the reason that that is, is as yoga students and teachers, we're already primed for this. Like we're drawn to the sensory experience of yoga, whether you're drawn to the sensory experience of an intense Ashtanga class or a yin class, you're drawn to these practices, at least in parts because of the sensory feedback that they provide. And so the best way, for example, to learn about the five muscular compartments of the hip is to look at them on slide or look at them however you look at them, visualize them, see them. But then we also want to make sure that you palpate them, that you actually touch them. And then ideally you want to feel each one of those regions lengthening And you want to feel each one of those regions contracting or shortening. And I think this is really key is think about having a multimedia experience of learning something. So we're not just learning something in two dimensions, but we're actually feeling that stuff because that ultimately is what you want to have your students be able to do is to feel the stuff. Yes, maybe it's nice if they understand that the 
that the rectus femoris is similar to, but also different than the vasti group. But more, I want my students to be able to feel that stuff, like actually feel it. I think this is why this is why experiencing an injury is often a fantastic inroad to understanding your anatomy because when you have an injury you become so curious about what the heck is going on and how to ameliorate the injury and you can feel something happening in your body that perhaps there was an inability to feel there before and that might be why you know you sustain the injury is because you couldn't feel something and then suddenly it's hurting and it's, oh, okay, what's happening there? What are all the connections there? What did I do that I could stop doing? Absolutely. <laughs> or what can I do to heal that injury? So I was thinking about this, that the times I have made the greatest leaps in my anatomical knowledge and my emotional knowledge and like my mapping of my nervous system is when I've come up with some kind of trouble there, when I've had some kind of challenge there. Absolutely. Yeah. It's... I say this to people in trainings all the time, your injuries, especially as a yoga teacher, your injuries, while sometimes unfortunate and unpleasant, and they're not something that we're looking to create, your injuries are going to be incredibly helpful resources and Mm -hmm. they're going to help you help your students. Mm -hmm. They really are. That's true. If you're like a sensible, reasonable person and you work with it and you learn from it, they're going to build empathy for students, but they're also going to build a certain amount of technical acumen. I, the last two things, the last two things like for me, again, under best practices or pitfalls to avoid, this is only something that I would say I've gotten better at helping my teachers do in the last couple of months. One of the things that I've, that I've added to all my anatomy curriculum is giving my students a detailed plan week over week of how to use the information they're learning in their classes. Now, this is kind of tricky, right? Because you don't, like you want to, as a teacher, you want to assimilate knowledge before you like cast it onto the world. You want to know what you're really talking about before you start to like broadcast that information. At the same time, one of the one of the fortunate things that I had as a yoga teacher was that throughout my very long training, I was teaching yoga. And if you are teaching yoga during a training, you can start to flow some of that information from the training into your classes. So here's what I mean by this whole process. Let's say that you are focused on shoulders learning anatomy and shoulders, my course, someone else's course, whatever it is, just get the concept, right? So let's say you're learning about the upward and downward rotation of the scapula, okay? So instead of just learning passively, like the upward and downward rotation of the scapula, use that as inspiration in your classes this week for your sequence and for also your cues, So you can focus on the upward rotation of the scapula in all the postures where the arms go up and overhead, and you can focus on the downward rotation of the scapula and every postures where the arms go down and back behind you. So you're already going to be doing poses like this, but you can start to focus a little bit more heavily on 
cueing those actions, on describing those actions, on feeling those actions. You can talk about the shoulder blades a little bit more overtly going apart and raising in downward facing dog, in handstand, in forearm balance, in tree pose. You can just really tune in of like, oh, as the teacher, I'm focused on that action of arm elevation. And I'm not, when they're doing arm elevation, going to tell someone what to do with the pelvis or the back leg or the back foot. I'm going to really talk about the shoulders this week. And then in that same class, you can do a lot of arms drawing down and back. So a lot of locus pose variations. There's plenty of other poses that do this. But the point being is you want to have a, you want to have a, a pipeline between what you're learning as a student and what you're teaching as a teacher because A, it's going to inspire your teaching and B, it's going to help you integrate that information. We all know that you learn much more when you're using the thing that you're learning. And so having a very structured plan to incorporate, to actually to use the information to make it immediately actionable is essential. I think the final thing, this is super quick and easy. I think the final thing that we need to do, and we would say this with every aspect, like every aspect of our learning is don't be too heavy handed with yourself. Try to enjoy it. That's a very I think good along point. these lines, this is really important for me in a way to close on, which is when you increase your knowledge of something, it shouldn't make you more fearful and more brittle and more scared and more held back. It should open you up. So we don't want to learn anatomy and like every moment in anatomy, be like, oh my God, oh, I need to know this or someone's going to get hurt. Oh my God. Oh my God. I was doing this wrong. Oh my God. Oh, I have to be able to tell people, you know, what to do when they supinate the foot or, oh my God, someone's going to get hurt. And this happens a lot, right? It happens like, if we don't know this technical knowledge and if we're not imparting it 100% all the time, then since our students are made of glass and dynamite, things are just going to be awful. You shouldn't learn anatomy from a place of fear, right? It should really be a place of like joy and wonder and appreciation and of adding value. And yeah, sure, you might from time to time be like, oh, okay. Now that I've learned this, I wish I had that thing I was saying back, but you don't, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Let it go and move on. Try to have fun. Try not to be too heavy-handed. The topic itself hopefully isn't dry. It shouldn't be made to be too dry, but it can be technical in ways that can be tedious. Like There's a fine line sometimes between technical and tedious, and so I think because this stuff can at times be tedious, and just learning can be tough sometimes. We just have to ease up and enjoy the ride. That's great advice. Give yourself time to enjoy it and to digest it and process it and think of yourself as a lifelong learner and you'll enjoy it a lot more. All right. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks for having me again. Okay, everyone. I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 290. And we have some blog posts that are anatomy based and anatomy focused that I can put up there on that show notes page. So go check that out. 
And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, it's so helpful if you leave us a rating or review or share it on social media or share it with people that you love. That helps more people find the podcast and get this information out there. So thanks so much for listening. And until next week, enjoy your practice.